We wish to call your attention for a little while this evening, beloved, to the Word of God as it is recorded in the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the first three verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You have heard, I'm sure, many times, beloved, that doctrine and life go together, and that these two are so related that the latter, that is, life, must flow out of the former, that is, doctrine. And this is the idea also that the Apostle has in mind (coughs) in this text that we have for tonight. Uh, The doctrine, of course, is implicit In that word, therefore, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, beseech you, and so forth. That word, therefore, of course, refers back into the context, and I take it that the apostle does not have in mind the immediate preceding context of chapter 3, or the last part of that chapter, but rather has in mind what he has written thus far in this epistle, beginning with chapter 1. And briefly, the doctrine which the apostle had called to the attention of the Ephesian church consisted in this. First of all, that God had chosen his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. I think he almost begins the epistle with this assertion. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You notice already here he suggests the idea not only that we are chosen, but that the fruit of that sovereign election would be that we walk holily without blame before him. That word in love may be connected with the fifth verse, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That first of all, you have been chosen, elected from before the foundation of the world in order that ye might become holy and blameless before him. 
In the second place, the apostle also calls attention to the fact in chapter 1 of the, that he had received the revelation of the mystery of God, the mystery of his will, which is that in Christ God is going to gather together in one all things in heaven and on earth. Here, of course, he refers to the uh, eternal purpose of God which shall be realized through Christ, but where there shall be a unity of all things in heaven and on earth, in Christ. That's sound doctrine. You will understand, of course, in our text he also speaks of unity, but there... The unity is the fruit of, the working out of this great unity that God is realizing through Christ according to the mystery of his will. It almost seems as though the apostle means to say this unity begins in the church and the Holy Spirit of Christ works out of the church until all things in heaven and on earth are brought into the sphere of this unity. That's the doctrine. Moreover, in chapter 2, he goes on to tell us that we are by nature children of darkness. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among these you also had your conversation. That's the way you were. But God in his rich mercy hath, and wherewith he loved us, has delivered us who were dead in sins, quickened us together with Christ. And then he goes on to tell us that we are Saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before prepared in order that we should walk in them. That's sound doctrine. And in the third chapter of this epistle, he tells us that he has been singled out by God to receive the revelation of this mystery and was called by God to reveal it unto the church. He who was most unworthy to do this because he himself had lived and walked in a very sinful and corrupt way, but God who is merciful also to him has called him to present unto the church this sound doctrine. That word therefore refers to all that I have said thus far. The doctrine. Out of that doctrine must flow, proceed, a walk that is worthy of our calling. That's the idea of the text. And he weights down this exhortation in the text with the rather solemn truth that he does this as the prisoner of the Lord. The apostle 
more than once in this epistle calls attention to this. I think you have this in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He begins by saying, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And in the last chapter, chapter 6, verse 20, he speaks of himself as an ambassador in bonds. And in our text, he is called, he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. Uh, there's a reason why he does this. <clears throat> we understand this is not at all intended to discourage the people of God, as if those who read this epistle hearing that he was a prisoner and then on top of that uh, receive from him an exhortation to walk worthy of their vocation, that they might conclude that if they walk worthy of their vocation, the ultimate of that is jail, imprisonment. No, that's not the intention, but the apostle means to say that even though it is true that your calling is one in which you may be required to become as I am, a prisoner in the Lord, you are nevertheless to hold high to your calling because this is supreme and ultimately one who walks according to that calling will know that he is not really a prisoner but that he is free and he walks in the liberty wherewith Christ has made him free. With these remarks in mind, I'd like to call your attention to our text for a few moments tonight under the theme, Exhorted to Walk Worthy of Our Calling. And there are three things that I would call to your attention in connection with this thought. First of all, its meaning. What is meant by the calling and what does it mean to walk worthy of that calling? In the second place, I call your attention to the manner in which this is to be realized. The apostle points this out by uh, telling us that we should do this with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And finally, I call your attention to the purpose which the Apostle has in mind with respect to walking worthy of our vocation, and that is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you can keep these three thoughts in your mind, you will not have difficulty in retaining what the Word of God has to say to us here tonight. First of all, then, we have to do with the calling. I think that that calling that the Apostle has in mind here is synonymous with the doctrine. Our calling and the doctrine in the mind of the Apostle here is the same. The idea is that God has determined, according to the preceding context, uh, to gather together all things in one in Christ. And he's going to do this for the church. 
That's rather striking, I think, how the apostle expresses that in the uh, first chapter already, but also in the second. He is going to do that with respect to his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is the heart of the unity of all things. As I suggested in my introductory remarks, the Holy Spirit begins, as it were, with the church, and he works out of that church into all the world so that ultimately all things shall be as it is with the church. I think this is clearly demonstrated time and again in the scriptures. For example, uh, we have worked in us what is called the grace of regeneration. That's the beginning of the life of heaven. It's resurrection life, immortality. Life that cannot be overcome by death. This is the very first principle that God implants in our hearts when he delivers us from the bondage of sin and death. But you understand that regeneration whereby you and I are become in principle new creatures. It cannot stand by itself. It must go on. It's a work uh, whereby God continues to regenerate, and he's, Paul speaks to Timothy of this in one, in the first epistle of the regeneration of all things, so that that grace whereby we are become new creatures is going to infilter into all of the creation in heaven and on earth to regenerate them, to make them also new. And this, of course, belongs to the, that operation of God whereby he is realizing this unity of heaven and earth, which is principally realized, first of all, in the church. Now, in order to realize this, you understand, God calls his people out of darkness into his marvelous light out of the kingdom of the darkness of this world into the kingdom of his dear son. He translates us powerfully from the one into the other. So much so that the apostle says in his letter to the Philippians, you are already the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 3, verse 20. Your conversation, he says, in the original text, that is, your citizenship is in heaven. In Colossians 3, verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That means you are already with Christ in heavenly places. You have been called out of darkness, out of the fellowship of this world, into the fellowship of Christ, into the kingdom of his dear son. And that calling, you understand, is efficacious. It's effectual. 
It accomplishes that unto which God sends it. And when we speak of the effectual calling, the efficacious calling, it must be understood, beloved, not that there is, as it is commonly understood, two callings, that we have an outward calling and an inward calling. No, there is one calling that is both outward and inward. The outward calling we identify with the preaching of the word. And God never departs from that. When he calls his people out of darkness into his marvelous light, he always does that through the preaching of the gospel. No otherwise. That's what makes that preaching of the gospel so important, so necessary. If there's to be any calling, any calling that saves, any calling that translates us from darkness into light, it must be through the audible preaching of the gospel. And along with that preaching of the gospel, there is also what we distinguish the inner calling. That is, the Spirit of Christ so operates through that audible pronouncement of the gospel that we hear it not only with our physical sense organs, but in our hearts. Jesus, for example, said, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and ye shall find rest for your soul. Now, of course, you can hear that with your ears. And undoubtedly, there were many who heard him say that. And who later, as we read in John 6, went away from him. They wouldn't have anything more to do with it. You can have that outward calling without the inward calling. There are many that are called, but few that are saved, that are chosen. And let me remind you, beloved, that when God calls to save, then he always accompanies that outward preaching of the gospel with the inner spiritual calling that goes to the heart. So that when Jesus says to you, who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, you come. It's efficacious. You must respond. This is the very nature of the calling as we speak of it here in this connection. The saving, efficacious calling of the Spirit through the Word. Now you understand, of course, that <coughs> that calling is connected to the doctrine. These two are inseparable. 
God doesn't come to us in his word and teach us doctrine and then come with a calling that is totally unrelated to it. He doesn't operate that way, if I may say that reverently. He always works so that he comes to us in the preaching with sound doctrine. You have people, you know, we probably have some right here that like to complain, you know, all we get is sound doctrine. Give us something practical. Well, I want to tell you something. If you were going to hear any preaching at all, it better be sound doctrine, or there isn't any preaching. The contents of the calling is always the truth of the Scriptures, the doctrine of God. And you can understand, too, how that works. When God tells us, for example, in the opening chapters of this epistle, it has been my eternal good pleasure to gather together all things in one, in Christ, in heaven and on earth, And I'm going to begin that to realize that purpose by gathering together, first of all, the church, whom I call out of darkness into my marvelous light. You can understand that if God calls, he must tell us that. Don't you see? We must understandingly, knowably, with our deepest understanding, know what God has in mind for us. And he always reveals that to us too. At the same time that he calls us to enter into and embrace the truth. And this is very significant. Even our children ought to understand this. You know, they probably get tired of that, learning their catechism lessons. You always have to keep on prompting them, reminding them it's time for them to learn. And, and, uh, and often they do. They learn them, too. But not always realizing, you know, what's back of all of that instruction. They must understand that when they are taught these principles of God's Word as they are in, in childlike manner, in catechism, that God has something in mind for them. He has in mind that they have a place in his covenant, in the new creation, that he has prepared for them an inheritance that is in heaven, and that that belongs to them. They must understand that. And, you know, I said it a week or two ago, Most of us, no matter how old we get, we're just like little children. We're still little children. We have to be taught, even sometimes in childlike language. And yet, beloved, this childlike language is so profound. Our calling is connected with 
the fundamental truths of God's word which he has dinned into our ears through the preaching and which by a living faith you embrace and to which also you respond. Now that calling that brings you into that kingdom, into that great inheritance that is in Christ, is a calling according to which you must walk. Walk worthy of that calling. What does that mean? What is our walk? <clears throat> and what does it mean to walk worthy of our calling? I think the apostle uses here probably uh, what we would call a Hebrewistic expression. Uh, walk is really a Hebrew idea. It comes from the Old Testament. And the term means to just simply walk about. But in the Old Testament, that idea is this is life. Uh, one's walk is his life as he experiences it here in this world. And sometimes the word is translated conversation. And of course that does not really express the idea of walk. When I think of conversation then I think of a dialogue perhaps with myself or with somebody else. We are conversing together. We are exchanging words. That's conversation in our usual understanding of the term. But when the Bible speaks of let your conversation be as becometh the gospel, then it isn't talking about your speech, I assure you. Oh, that's included in it. But your whole life is included in it. From the cradle to the grave, and I hasten to add that life with all of its departments. You know, we're so apt to departmentalize life, to put it in certain categories. For example, we talk about our business life. We talk about our family life. We talk about our church life. And all other kinds of life, our amusement life. We have all kinds of departments that we make for our life. And uh, we, in doing so, often segregate, separate these departments, and uh, very often the one department evidently doesn't have anything to do with the other. And we can do that so easily, you know, between Sunday and Monday morning. We can have our church life. That's something that is very special for the Sabbath. We're very religious. And we go through all of the motions of religion on the Sabbath. But tomorrow morning, when as soon as you get home, of course, that suit that you wore today goes up in the closet. You don't see that again till next Sunday. Tomorrow you get on your work clothes and then you are in a different department. Then you are in the sphere of labor or business or education or whatever it may be. 
And then when we go just one step farther, then we say on Sunday, on the Sabbath day, when we are in the spiritual department, then of course we must watch our P's and Q's. We must walk circumspectly. But tomorrow, what does my religion have to do with my business or with my work? It isn't very hard to get into that kind of thinking. And I see an awful lot of that. Much more than there ought to be. It ought to become very evident to you and me, beloved, that our life, though it may be distinguished in these various departments, and in certain ages, I have my life as a small child that has to be on my mother's breast. I'm helpless. I need to be taken care of momentarily. Pretty soon when I am in a different stage, I start walking. And the mother has to watch me because I'm just liable to run away from her. She has to always come after me and say, no, 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 you've got to come back here. This is where you belong. You know, but then I get still older, then I get independent. And then I tell my mother that I don't want her to tell me all the time what I have to do. You know, we have periods of life that are like that. Well, let me tell you something. No matter whether you are a little babe that has to cling to your mother's breast, or whether you are an old man that has gone the gamut. Your life is one. Your whole walk from the cradle to the grave is your walk, is your life that must be lived in complete harmony with your calling. That word worthy in the text here is really a, yeah, it's a nice word. It really means literally uh, equal in weight. That's what the word means, literally. And of course, if you want to apply that to the relation between the walk and the calling, then they're equal in weight. They're both very, very significant. They belong together. If you walk worthy of your calling, then your walk is in harmony with your calling. In every respect. So that it conforms and fits precisely. There are no flaws. No discrepancies. Nothing that in any way would make it appear that the two are not one. Or that they are one. That's the idea. We are to live in this present evil world as those who belong to another. We are to be children of light that fits 
precisely into the kingdom of heaven, not the world of darkness. And when these two harmonize so that you in your life, in your walk, are precisely what God has destined for you, then you're right. Then you're what you ought to be. When it isn't, you're wrong. And you have missed the point. That's the idea. Now let me hasten on. The apostle says, I therefore as a prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, that is, of the calling wherewith he are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Here, of course, he reflects on the manner in which this life that we are to live that is to be in harmony with our calling, is realized here in the midst of the world. And particularly, I think he has in mind that life as we live it in the church, in relation to one another. Oh, it's impossible, of course, to, uh, to segregate God's people from the world. They're in it. They have to deal with the world, too. And therefore, it must needs follow that if we are to walk in lowliness of mind, in meekness, and long-suffering and forbearance, it must also be with respect to the children of this world with whom we daily come in contact. There's no question about that. But I think that the Apostle has in mind primarily the relation of the children of God to one another. He is speaking, of course, as we will see in a few moments, of the unity of the body of Christ, of the unity of the church. And uh, undoubtedly, he has in mind also that this walk, which is worthy of our calling, is one that is going to be realized, first of all, and primarily in the church, in relation to one another. And in that relationship, he suggests that we do that with all lowliness. You understand, of course, this term lowliness here stands over against our natural pride. The natural man is proud and haughty. And sometimes, because we, as I said this morning, keep our old nature till we die, and that old nature reveals itself, you often see this stinking pride cropping up. Lowliness is the direct spiritual opposite. The one who is lowly has lost his stinking pride. He does not think much of himself. In fact, the word lowliness here in the original text is lowliness of mind, where we do our thinking. 
We make our size of the things that are around about us, of all things. Our assessment. We do our thinking. We contemplate, we weigh, we meditate with our mind. Lowliness of mind must mean such lowliness that we do not think of ourselves more than what we properly are. And I tell you, this is a tremendous grace. A meekness <clears throat> which goes with it, I think, is possibly a result of lowliness of mind. When you don't think much of yourself, then you are generally also meek and mild and gentle. You're not vindictive. You don't exert yourself to get preeminence. You'd rather be the last than the first. That's meekness. Lowliness of mind is a sense of moral littleness. And meekness is the result of it. We are gentle and kind and mild. Now you understand we're not talking about some psychological things that the psychologists or the psychiatrists would deal with. We're dealing with spiritual graces. And this is what happens when the child of God is translated from darkness into light, as the Apostle tells us in the preceding chapters. He humbles us. He breaks down our sinful and natural pride. He makes us see that we are nothing. And all that's so hard to learn. Because when our old nature gets the best of us, we are vindictive. Somebody steps on my toes, I'm going to stamp back at him. That's the first natural reaction. He did it to me, I'm going to do it to him. That idea is born, as it were, and burned into our natures. And it's so hard to get rid of it. If you'd like to have a good illustration of a meek man, of a lowly-minded man, I think you will find that in the man Moses. He was called the meekest of men. And you know, uh, when you read what the children of God did, how they transgressed and corrupted themselves, and how they always bellyate about everything, and they complained. They complained to Moses. Moses, at last, when he became uh, aware of his old pride, proud nature, says, God, why in the world did you ever make me to be the leader of this people? Do you think that I brought this people into being? And that was especially true when they asked for when they got sick of that manna and they wanted to have meat. You know, I called your attention to that a couple of weeks ago. 
You think that I can provide meat for them? Then, of course, his stinking pride came to the foreground. But when he was meek, then he didn't say anything to that people, but he went directly to the Lord, and he laid the case before the Lord. And he said, Lord, what must I say unto them? That's meekness. That's lowliness of mind. You want another example? Look at Jesus. Oh, you read it, you know, already in the Old Testament, prophetically of him. He was despised and rejected of men. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And they took him and they spit on him, and they buffeted him with their fists. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and they pressed it into his noble brow so that his face streamed with blood. And he answered them, not a word. That's meekness. That's lowliness of mind. You understand? This is precisely what the Apostle is telling us here. You want to walk worthy of your calling? This is what has to happen. Your sinful, corrupt, and natural pride has to be abased. You have to become nothing in your own judgment and estimation. And you are meek, so that you are willing even to be oppressed rather than to exert yourself, to defend yourself over against the evil. And the Apostle, of course, places this meekness over against violence. I think it's the most natural thing to show violence when we are opposed. This is what we're seeing all around us today. The world, of course, doesn't know this grace. It has no grace of lowliness of mind or meekness. They're proud and vindictive. And therefore, you have all the violence. You won't have that when you are lowly in mind and meek in spirit. But there's more. The apostle says, long-suffering forbearing one another in love. These terms, long-suffering and forbearance, often go together. And I take it that that term long-suffering, when these two terms are together, as they are here too, refers to the willingness, the grace to be submissive under any circumstances, especially those in which we are required to suffer. And I come back to what I said a moment ago, when you think of these terms in the light of the fact that God has placed us in a solid community of the church, the unity of the church. And this is where this grace comes to its own, because you remember all of the members of the church, though they may in principle partake of this same grace, do not all possess it alike. And very often it is true that the old man of sin reveals itself preeminently 
and not the new man that is in Christ. And therefore we can be the cause whereby we bring suffering to our brother or our sister in Christ. We can do that with our words. We can do that with our actions. And if we possess the grace of long-suffering, then you can endure all of the slander, all of the backbiting, and all of the evil words that have been railed against you. And forbearance means that you are able to endure that which is wicked, which is wicked also in the church. Sometimes these terms are used with respect to the children of God as they stand over against the children of this world. And then it speaks also of God's relationship to the world. And then I remind you that you never read in the Bible that God is long-suffering over the reprobate wicked. But you do read that he forbears them. Now what does that mean? He is long-suffering over his people. You read that in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Who is not willing that any should perish but that we should all come to repentance... He is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to us word. Not willing that any should perish. That means that God suffers long with us until we finally are perfected. He endures with us. He's not impatient with us. He's long-suffering. And while he is long-suffering over his people, he forbears the wicked. He endures them too, until their measure of iniquity is full, and he comes to destroy them and to deliver his beloved, over whom he is long-suffering. That's these terms as they are related to God in relation to his people. But the apostle is speaking here of these terms in relation of God's people to God's people. And that must mean then that you are willing to bear the sufferings which are imposed upon you. And as far as those who are full of malice and evil in the church of Christ, you bear with them until they come to repentance or, as is often the case, are excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ. You bear with that. You don't sit in judgment. You don't try to dispose of them in judgment. But you bear with that. And this is the manner in which we are to uh, realize our walk according to our calling. And notice that the apostle says that we forbear one another in love. That's the sphere in which these graces come to their manifestation. And as you know, and you've heard this too many times, love is the bond of perfection. Love seeks perfection. In this case, it's the sphere of the perfect. In principle, of course, God in principle has worked perfection in his church 
in that sphere where he so operates that in principle there is already the perfection that he has destined for us, in that sphere you are to walk in lowliness of mind, in meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. And the purpose of it is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit, of course, is <clears throat> the author of this unity, as well as of peace of which the Apostle speaks. You understand it is the Spirit of Christ who is going to realize the unity of the church as well as the unity of all things. God, through Christ and through the Spirit of Christ, is going to realize this unity. He's the author and the worker, the activator of this unity, also as it comes to manifestation in the church. But you understand, though that is his work, he does not work apart from and loosely from the church itself. He works in the church. He works through the church. So that it is also the purpose of the church to guard the unity. Endeavoring to keep to keep is to guard, like a sentinel guards a prison or a camp. To keep that safely within, that belongs properly within. So it is also the calling of the Christian church, of the members of the church, to guard the unity which the Spirit of which the Spirit is the author and worker in the church. And right here, of course, you have, in a sense, this whole idea of ecumenicity, which is almost universally misunderstood today. The idea is, of not, is not, of course, that we are going to realize the unity of the church, and we're going to do that by hook or crook, with all kinds of mergers. This is what is being done, of course, and of course that's a false unity. In this attempt also they want to cut down the rough and hard edges of the doctrines. They don't want any hair-splitting doctrines that can separate people. They want doctrines that can unify people. They want to talk about the universal love of God and the brotherhood of men in which there are no doctrinal differences, no hair-splitting controversies. Now I want to assure you, beloved, it is the duty and the calling of the church to look for and to keep the unity of the church. That's her calling. But it has to be according to the doctrine. Go back to what I said at the beginning tonight. Your calling is never apart from the doctrine. It must not be so that you cut down your doctrine in order to spare unity. Unity must be established upon the truth. Nothing else. 
That's the way the Spirit operates. And that's the way the church also must respond. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Of course, the unity of the Spirit is realized in a bond in which all schism and warfare is banished. Oh, that doesn't mean that the church won't have any controversy anymore, any warfare. Our children are taught in catechism to learn that the church, as long as she is in the world, is a militant church. That means she's always at, at battle. She has a sword of the Spirit, and she fights. That belongs also to seeking and realizing the unity of the church. It must mean that sinners in the church, ungodly sinners, must also be banished from the church through proper channels, through the Christian discipline, which must be exercised faithfully in the church. That belongs with it. If we're going to seek the unity of the church, it must be a unity that is perfectly established upon the truth of the scriptures. Solid, sound, beautiful doctrine, which is the substance of our faith. This is our calling, brethren, and this is the purpose of making our calling to be in conformity with our walk, or our walk to be in conformity with our calling. It is with a view to realization of this great, grand unity which shall be realized most perfectly when all that is of this present time of sin and darkness and corruption, not only in the world, but also in the church, shall be banished and we shall stand in the brightness of the new and eternal day where God shall be all in all. That's our calling. For that calling you have been strengthened through the preaching of his word and through the holy sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Walk in that strength and in that faith according to your calling. In lowliness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the bond of unity or the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and you shall be blessed forevermore. Amen. Our Father, would thou sanctify unto us thy word of truth. Give us grace not only to hear it, but to embrace it with a true and living faith, and to respond to this doctrine as thou hast exhorted us in thy word. And unto thee we shall give the thanksgiving now and forever. Amen.